Many of you have heard me said or say, if you don't believe you deserve hell, you aren't saved. How can you be? I mean, it's one of those statements that I've coined over the years as I've thought through the gospel that I use to help people think through, use to think through what it means that our salvation is based on the accomplished work of Christ and him alone. And so if you don't believe that you deserve damnation, that you deserve God's wrath, if you don't believe that you were separated from him and needed Christ and his reconciling work to bring you back into union with the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, then how can you be saved? And as we think through that, I'd like to suggest that the two symbols that God has given the church, baptism and communion, only emphasize that fact further. They emphasize the fact that the saving work of Christ is what we need. They emphasize the fact that I am unable to save myself, my inability. And they proclaim the ability and sufficiency of Christ and the work of God and the Spirit in our lives. But that's what they do. As we continue through our series this week, Hitting the Mark, Marks of a Healthy Church, we're looking today at the two symbols that God has left the church, one being baptism, the other being communion. And as we come, one of the struggles that many Christians that are facing in life is one of judgment. Many Christians stand in judgment of others. They hear about someone in the world and their moral inclinations and they go, wow, I would never do that. That's beneath me. Wow, I would never live like that. Wow, I would never. And you hear Christians passing judgment like that continually. Baptism and communion are reminders that it's only by the grace of God that we've been saved. And it's only by his grace that we grow in our sanctification and our Christ-likeness. So hear this. Baptism is the altar call of the New Testament. Baptism is the altar call of the New Testament around Christ's, my sorry, insufficiency and Christ's sufficiency from Matthew 3. In those days, John the Baptist came. He was preaching in the wilderness of Judea and he was saying, repent for the kingdom of heaven has come near. People went out to him from Jerusalem and all Judea and the whole region of the Jordan. They confessed their sins and they were baptized by him in the Jordan River. John the Baptist, when he shows up as the forerunner to Christ, he calls out, repent. Repentant is a turning from your sin and a turning to God. Repentance is acknowledging the fact that you're a sinner and trusting Christ for salvation. Repent, repent. John the Baptist is calling people to repent from their sin. That's why when they're gathering here in Matthew 3 in the Jordan River for baptism, they're confessing their sin, the word of God says. They're confessing their sin and they're being baptized. In Matthew 28, we find another passage about baptism. The word of God says, then Jesus came to them and said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. So go and make disciples of all nations, baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Teach them to obey everything I've commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. In his resurrected body, having died for our sin and now alive because he defeated sin and Satan and death, Jesus declares, I want you to go and make disciples, followers. As you go in the ways you're going, in the places where you are, I want you to make disciples and make them of all nations. And the first thing you're to do with a disciple is what? Baptize them. It's the altar call of the New Testament. Repent and be baptized. Repent and be initiated into the kingdom 
by this symbol of baptism that declares your alliance, that declares your allegiance, that declares that you're now part of God's kingdom and no longer part of the kingdom of the world. And so the first thing we're to do is to baptize them and then teach them to obey everything Christ has commanded. Now note something here, we baptize people in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit because God is triune, three in one. And so we're baptizing in the name of the Father, the Son and the Spirit. The Father who loves us, the Son who saves us, the Spirit who sanctifies us and who draws us to the Son so that we can worship God as Father, Son, and Spirit. I bring you now to Acts chapter two, where at the day of Pentecost, where Peter is preaching to the people that are listening, a large group have gathered. And as they're there gathered and Peter is preaching about who Jesus is and the fact that he is Messiah, he ends his sermon in Acts two with this. Therefore, let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus whom you crucified, both Lord and, G and Messiah. Some translations would say both Lord and Christ. God has made this Jesus, the Jesus we're talking about, the Jesus from Nazareth, the Nazarene. God has made this Jesus whom you crucified. He says, you guys were there just a few weeks ago when Christ was crucified. Some of you were chanting, crucify him, crucify him. God has made this Jesus Lord and Christ. He is the Lord. He is the Messiah. So the people all of a sudden realize We've killed God. Could you imagine being there in that moment? And the Spirit of God quickens your heart to the realization that you've killed the Lord, you've killed the Messiah, that you were part of the crowd that declared his execution. This is what they say. When the people heard this, they're cut to the heart. And they say to Peter and the other apostles, what should we do? They don't know what to do. What do you do when you've killed God? What do you do when you've crucified the Messiah? What do you do when you've crucified the Lord? Peter gives an answer, he replies. He says, this is what you do when you've killed God. Repent and be baptized. All of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sin, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The promise is for you and is for your children and for all who are far off, for anyone who would call the Lord our God, or sorry, for any uh, whom the Lord our God will call. This promise is for all of them. Peter says, repent and be baptized. Now, baptism isn't for the forgiveness of sins. Repentance is repent so that your sin can be forgiveness, forgiven. Baptism is that altar call. It's the initialization into the kingdom. How do we know that? Well, when you think of Jesus as he's dying, there's two criminals on either side of him. The one he says what to, when he, when he says to him, Jesus, would you remember me when you, you come into your kingdom? Jesus says, I tell you the truth, you'll be with me in paradise. Today, he says, you'll be with me in paradise. That thief is not baptized. They don't come off the cross and hold a baptism service in the Jordan River. None of that occurs, he simply dies. So we know that you don't need to be baptized in order to be saved. However, if you are saved and you're not saved on your deathbed, the altar call or the first thing you should do as a believer is not join a Bible study. The first thing you should do as a believer is not go to church. The first thing you should do as a believer is what? Is be baptized. Now I realize in today's day and age and in our culture, if you come to faith in Christ on a Wednesday night in December, there's not always a place where there's enough water for you to be baptized. 
right? And so we want to meet with you, have a conversation to ensure that God has saved you and baptized you. But I believe that people should be baptized very shortly after their conversion. It's what scripture teaches. It's a pattern we see. You repent and you're baptized, demonstrating that your sin has indeed been forgiven and your alliance has changed. I remember when I was meeting with Christy, she was a young woman coming to our church, 18 years of age, dating a 17 year old. He was the high school quarterback for his football team. She was one of the cheerleaders. You had one of those stories. And uh, he, she came from a non-Christian home. He came from a believing home, um, but they found themselves pregnant as 17 and 18 year old teenagers. And as we met in coffee shops near her home, Glenn and Christy and I having conversations about what to do, God in the middle of all that saved her, gloriously grabbed a hold of her heart. And then God saved her husband, Glenn. And they now serve the Lord in St. Catherine's and a sister church where she serves as a children's ministry director. But I remember her baptism. I remember it plain as day. Her declaring that God had recently saved her. Her confessing her sin and trusting Christ and him alone for salvation. That's what we do. We come and declare to the world, I'm bankrupt. I've got nothing. I'm insufficient. Christ is my all. He is fully sufficient. He's taken on my debt. Taken on my debt. Romans 6, we looked at Romans the last couple of years, about a year ago, but it reminds us of what baptism represents or symbolizes. It says this, Paul says, what shall we say then? Should we go on sinning so that grace may increase? Not at all, by no means. You, you don't add more sin to your life so that God can give you more grace. Paul says, what a foolish way to think. Oh yeah, I'll sin more so that God has the opportunity to be more gracious. We are those who have died to sin. So how could we live it any, any longer? Our sin has been paid for, we've died to it. Don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead to the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. For if we have been united with him like this in his death, we will certainly be also united with him in a resurrection like this. For we know that our old self was crucified with him, so the body ruled by sin would be done away with, and we would no longer be slaves to sin, because anyone who has died has been set free from sin. And so here we have the Apostle Paul explaining what baptism symbolizes. It symbolizes as we're plunged underwater that we die. We're dying to sin, we're being drowned. In holding us there for a moment, it represents that we've been buried. And that burial, that, that drowning, that death signifies that we've died to sin, we've died in Christ. We've been buried with him. It symbolizes that our life now has been buried with Christ and it's left there in the tomb, our old life. And we're raised to life and we're brought back out of the water, representing that we have now been given resurrection. We've now been given new life. Just as Christ was raised to life, we now have new life spiritually, and one day we will have new life in resurrected bodies. It's a glorious image, what God has given us. That's why as Baptists, we believe that baptism is something that we conduct in tanks or in rivers or in pools, in lakes, where we take someone plunging them under the water, representing the association with their dying with Christ, holding them there for a moment, representing that they've been buried with Christ and bringing them back up again, representing that they're alive in Christ. 
And I don't believe any other mode of baptism as fully represents what God is talking about here in Romans or later in Colossians that we'll look at this fall, this symbol of baptism. But baptism, when you're baptized, is coming to the recognition, the realization of the debt load you carry, of the weight of sin that you can't get rid of, and of the glorious sufficiency of Christ that he paid your debt and canceled it. He took it upon himself, having died for your sin, and he grants you a clean slate. That is the glorious good news of the gospel and what Christ has done for us. But then God's given us another symbol, and this symbol we call the Lord's table. And the Lord's table is remembering Christ, it's remembering his sacrifice and my need for him. We move now to the Passover, and so I take you to the Passover feast where Jesus asked his disciples to go and prepare. It's the night before he experiences his death. And as they're there celebrating, Jesus simply takes a piece of bread. Matthew 26, verse 26. While they were eating, Jesus took bread. And when he'd given thanks, he took it, he gave it to his disciples saying, take and eat, this is my body. Then he took a cup. And when he had given thanks, he gave it to them and said, drink from it, all of you. This is my blood, the blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink from the fruit of the vine or, or from the vine until now or from now on until the day when I drink it anew with you in my father's kingdom. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. The Passover was a celebration of God's people remembering that he had freed them from the tyranny and the enslavement of the Egyptians. And so God sent a variety of plagues, 10 in total, the final plague being the death of the firstborn, where the Israelites were told that if they took a lamb, a perfect, spotless, unblemished lamb, and they poured or sprinkled its blood over their doorposts, that the angel of death would pass them by, they would pass over. And so that night there was wailing in Egypt as all of the firstborn died. But the Israelites celebrated as they were set free from the tyranny of the Egyptians. And God let his people go. And the Passover was a dual celebration. It was a remembrance of God's salvation upon them, but also a looking forward to the promised land that God would give them. It was a remembrance of God freeing them from slavery and a looking forward to the promised land that God was gonna grant them. And so every time the Jewish people would celebrate communion, uh, celebrate the Passover, they were both at that point in time thanking God for his deliverance from Egypt and the gift of the promised land. And so they're there, they're eating this Passover meal and Jesus takes a piece of bread as part of the meal. As they're celebrating, he breaks it open. And he says, this, this is my body. This, this bread represents my body, take and eat it. They would have had no clue what he meant. Bread was just a common everyday substance that the Jewish people would have eaten. This would have been unleavened bread because it was a Passover. And then it says he took a cup and he gave thanks. Note he prays both times. He prays for the bread, a prayer of blessing, he prays for the cup. In the Passover meal, there were typically four cups and a, and a fifth. The fifth was representing Elijah not yet come. The other four were four cups of wine that the Jewish people would drink. And those four cups of wine represented or remembered from God's promises of his deliverance of his people. I will bring out, I will uh, I will deliver, I will redeem, and I will take. 
I will bring out, I will deliver, I will redeem, and I will take. And, and so this is the third cup, most likely. As they're celebrating the meal, Jesus takes the cup, the cup of blessing, the cup of thanksgiving, the cup of redemption. He offers a blessing, a, a prayer of thanksgiving. And he says, this is the blood of the covenant. Drink from it, all of you. It's poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. And they wouldn't fully understand what that means until after his resurrection. But in the Passover cup of redemption and of blessing and of thanksgiving, Jesus says, this is me. I am your redeemer. He becomes the Passover lamb that all of us need. That's partly why they're celebrating this on Passover. And so the blood represents Christ's incarnation, that God would cloak his deity with humanity and come down and live among us so that we could be saved that he would live a sinless life, having done nothing wrong. At the end of his life, he would give it up for us. He would die for us. His body would be broken. And when we hold the piece of bread, we remember Christ's body was broken for me. The great physician was broken for me. And then the cup represents that his blood was shed. His blood was spilled out, poured out on the cross. The wrath of the Father poured out on him as he's crushed on the cross. His blood is shed and he dies for my sin. He becomes my redeemer. And communion reminds us of two things. Because notice what Jesus says. I tell you, I won't drink from the fruit of the spine from now on until the day when I drink it anew in my father's, in my, in, sorry, drink it anew with you in my father's kingdom. Now we know he ate fish in his resurrected body. But why didn't he drink another glass of wine? Because he's saying, I'm not going to fully celebrate again until I have all of you home with me. And at the wedding supper of the Lamb, our Lord is going to celebrate with us and drink from it again. As he celebrates with us, his incredible redemptive work. Not only is communion a remembering of who our Savior is and what he's done, reminding us of his body being broken and his blood being shed. But it's a looking forward to the fact that one day we're going to drink with him in the great wedding supper of the Lamb, a celebratory feast of the accomplished work of Christ. And he will be celebrating with us. We'll be celebrating his work. He'll be celebrating his accomplished work. And what is his accomplished work? He got to bring us home. He got to bring us home. Then it says they sang a hymn and went up to the Mount of Olives. The hymn was most likely Psalm 115 to 118 or 114 to 118, but typically 115 to 118. Jesus would most likely have been singing or saying or stating most of it, and they would have been crying out, Alleluia. And so Jesus leaves for his um, crucifixion with the song of the Psalter on his lips and in his heart having declared his trust in God. In 1 Corinthians 11, we find some further directives when it comes to celebrating the Lord's table. Let me go through them. Paul says in verse 17, in the following directives, I don't have any praise for you. For your meetings do more harm than good. In the first place, I hear that when you come together as a church, there are divisions among you. And to some extent, I believe it. No doubt there have to be some differences to show that you have God's approval. So then... When you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper you eat. 
For when you are eating, some of you go ahead with your own private suppers. As a result, one person remains hungry, the other person gets drunk. You have homes to eat and drink in. Or do you despise the church of God by humiliating those who have nothing? What you say, what shall I say to you? Shall I praise you? Certainly not in this matter. So just as Jesus and the disciples celebrated their first Lord's Supper or communion as the Passover feast, God's people here are celebrating his meals. And what's happening is instead of people coming and sharing what they have, they're coming bringing their festive foods. And some people are like, oh, look at the choice meat I have and look at the choice fruit I have and look at the choice cheese I have. And as they celebrate, they would pause and say, now take the bread, remember Christ. Take the drink, remember Christ. But some people have come to the meal with very little because they're impoverished. And instead of the rich sharing what they have with the poor, they're just saying, look at what we have. And to the poor, oh, that's all you could bring. And so Paul says, you're creating division. Wealth was never meant to divide. In the book of Acts, we find that people shared their wealth. Those that had more gave to those that had left. So maybe this is where the first true potlucks of the church started out of Paul's directives here of being able to share your food. I don't know that. I am just throwing that out. Paul says, it's better that you eat your full at home if you're not going to share when you come together. So he says, there's division among you. Then he says this, I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread. We gave thanks, he broke it. And he said, this is my body, which is for you. So do this in remembrance of me. Then he took the cup saying, this is the cup of the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and you drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. One of the quotes I really appreciated as I was reading this, as Paul says, the apostle were to do this in remembrance of Christ, is Charles Spurgeon said, you cannot remember a person you don't know, or you cannot remember a person you never knew. And so as we talk about communion and what it means to celebrate communion, it's for believers. Communion is for those whom God has saved, those who have come in repentance and trusted Christ as Savior and as part of God's covenant. Jesus said that in Matthew 26, this is the blood of my covenant. It's repeated here in 1 Corinthians 11. This cup is the new covenant. This is God's promise to his people. I have redeemed you and I will carry you through. It is my covenant and God's covenants are unbreakable. It says, Paul says in his commentary on it, verse 26, that whenever you do this, you eat the bread, you drink this cup, you're declaring the Lord's death until he returns. You're declaring who Christ is and what he's done. So then Jesus, or Paul says in verse 27, whoever eats this bread or drinks this cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner is guilty of sinning against the body and the blood of the Lord. So everyone should examine themselves before they eat the bread and drink the cup. Because those who eat and drink without discerning the body of Christ eat and drink judgment on themselves. That is why many of you are weak and sick, and, and sick, sorry, and a number of you have fallen asleep, you've died. But if you were more discerning with regard to yourselves, we would not come under such judgment. Nevertheless, when we are judged in this way by the Lord, we are being disciplined so that we will not be finally condemned with the world. We're not to eat and drink communion in an unworthy manner. This is what's known as fencing or guarding the table. And some people go to extremes where they think it's the church's responsibility to fence or guard the table. Paul's really clear. We're to declare that it's the person's responsibility. That's why at Houston Street, we say to people, you're to examine yourself this morning. Are you a believer? Is there division that's mentioned right here in this chapter between you and other believers? That division needs to be settled before you can 
celebrate communion, at least insofar as you are able to. And are you walking in unrepentant sin? If you are, you need to repent. You need to repent and not make a mockery of this table. So here it's calling to us, examine yourself. Think through your Christian walk. Have you truly trusted Christ? Is there sin in your life that you are holding on to, that you're not wanting to give up and get over, over to the Lordship of Christ? Is there division between you and other believers? That's up to you now to go and seek reconciliation. And Paul's really clear that the reason some people are sick and others people have even died is because they've taken communion, the Lord's table, in an unworthy manner. So they've eaten and drinking without discerning and they've eaten and drinking judgment upon themselves. This is a New Testament passage, which to me very clearly says that this is happening even today, that some people in Hamilton, in our churches, in North America, in our churches are sick and have even died because they've taken communion in an unworthy manner. That's why we're to examine ourselves. Notice what it says. The Lord is doing this when we're judged so that in being disciplined, we will not be condemned with the world. He's concerned about our soul, our relationship with him. Paul's saying, God is this harsh because he wants you to be in right relationship with him. He's more concerned about your right relationship with him than anything else. So Paul says, see to it, my brothers and sisters, when you gather, that you all eat together. If you're hungry, eat before you come, so that when you come together, it doesn't result in judgment. That as you gather, you're celebrating the Lord. Your focus is not on what you've brought as part of this meal. Your focus is on the Lord and who he is and what he's done. And so as we celebrate communion today, we encourage you to take a moment and examine yourself. Are you saved? If you're saved, we want you to celebrate communion with us. Is there division? If there is, maybe you need to text someone today. Maybe you need to call someone and say, hey, can we go for a socially distant walk? Can we have a conversation? I've sinned against you and I need to rectify it. Or maybe you're walking in unrepentant sin and in this moment you need to repent. And so baptism is the declaration of my bankruptcy and insufficiency and of Christ's fullness and his sufficiency. The Lord's table is the continual declaration of my need for him. And as I remember him, I remember his unconditional love that's extended freely to us. As I remember him, I remember his sacrificing, taking my place on the cross, dying my death. As I remember him, I remember his resurrection, that he conquered sin and Satan and death. And so the chains of death could not enslave him, could not hold him down, but instead he was raised to life again. As I remember him, I remember his saving work in my life. I am now a child of God. I'm an heir of God, praise his name. As I remember him, I remember that he has granted us his sanctifying spirit and the spirit is in us making us like Christ. As I remember him, I remember that he is returning and one day he's gonna bring us home. And when we're home, we'll be in a place where there is no sin, where Satan has been vanquished, where death does not exist, where disease no longer has any hold. I will be in a place where Christ will be at centerpiece forever and ever and ever. And until that day, I celebrate communion, remembering him, would you pray with me? We are so thankful that in your incredible wisdom, you've left us these two symbols. Baptism, the initiation or the altar call into your kingdom that reminds us that we have 
Lord Jesus, we, we've died with you, we've been buried with you, and we've been raised with you. Thank you for that symbol declaring our allegiance, our alliance with you and your kingdom. And thank you for communion that reminds us that your body was broken, that your blood was shed, that reminds us as we remember you, your incredible work, not only when you were here, but in your resurrected body now and forevermore, one day coming to bring us home. Help us to remember you. We're thankful for these two symbols that you've left us. And we're thankful for in your just ingeniousness, you granted us just a practical means to recall your work. We thank you in Jesus' name, amen.